And uh, as you are remaining there, and I'm getting my notes in place here, I wonder if, if you've ever had the experience, whether it's in social media or scrolling through a news feed, or maybe you've just seen it in a book somewhere, where there is the, uh, the post that says, only those with exceptional intelligence can see this number of things in this picture in so many seconds. To which I always walk away concluding I am an absolute moron, idiot, cannot find them ever. It's always like three zebras in this scene and, you know, you just, you just can't find them. Um, or those pictures where you see, do you see a young woman or do you see an, an elderly woman? You know, the two different pictures and people, or one picture, and two different people can see two different scenes. I wonder when Jamie was reading this section of Mark's gospel to us, what picture you saw in your mind's eye as he read the events that took place that day that we'll delve into here in just a moment. What did you see? Because it's possible as we come to it to see different extremes, if you will. We see two different extremes. On the one hand, we come face to face with an exceedingly dark and disturbing scene of human cruelty. But on the other hand, we encounter the most extraordinary display of God's love and justice. And Mark carries us through these events with a sense of purpose and pace. He doesn't use many words, but he brings us to a point of conclusion, a crossroads of sorts, as we are meant not simply just to observe what's happening and hear it, but to enter into these events through what he writes, and to conclude, hopefully, with the Roman centurion at the end, surely this man was and is the Son of God. So as we move toward that crossroads and that point of conclusion, we have to first descend and face into what we would likely prefer to turn away from. And as Jamie's already prayed, uh, let us just proceed with God's word. So what do we see as we descend into that and face into it? Well, in the crucifixion, we, as I've already said, come face to face with something that is exceedingly dark and disturbing. In modern Western societies, um, the horror and brutality of execution by crucifixion is foreign to our experience. But in ancient Palestine, literally thousands of people were executed by execution under Roman rule. It was a terror tactic. It was something employed by Rome to instill fear and cast shame on those who witness execution in this manner. It was a tool of Rome to maintain control. Don't cross them or this is what could happen to you. Now Mark is similar to the other gospel writers in not really giving much attention to the physical brutality of crucifixion and all that that entailed. The physical suffering of Jesus was not their emphasis, nor was it somehow exceptional to him, as bad as it was, because many others had died in this fashion. From a practical standpoint, Mark's readers were probably likely much more familiar with the practice than we are, so it's worth some consideration for us to consider uh, and appreciate what's happening here. Because while the physical suffering is not the emphasis, it is an undeniable uh, element. So look at verse 15, where Jamie began earlier of Mark's gospel, chapter 15. It says, wanting to please the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over 
to be crucified. Now, flogging was frequently a preliminary step in the process of crucifixion. It didn't necessarily happen before, right at the beginning, but it was involved. And in itself, it was so physically traumatic that there were those who did not survive this initial action. With their clothing entirely removed, the entire backside from head to toe was lashed with a whip designed to inflict severe damage to the body. The whip itself contained fragments of bone or metal which would violently grab and cut the flesh that was simultaneously being hit by the whip and bruised by the impact. So the statement, he had Jesus flogged, conveys a brutal and disturbing process, the likes of which would make us shudder and turn our eyes away. And after that, it says in verse 16, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Having been scourged or flogged, Jesus is led away into the presence of anywhere between 200 and 600 soldiers. Not quite sure what our attendance is this morning with with, uh, people away on holiday, but imagine roughly... This room, anywhere between what we have this morning and maybe three to four hundred more, is the presence in which Jesus is brought into. And this dark and disturbing physical brutality of crucifixion is interrupted by something equally disturbing. A drama, a spectacle, marked by contempt and cruelty and mocking. Look at verse 17. They put a purple robe on him. Then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! You can envision the scene. Rowdy soldiers. Look at this, boys! We have a king gracing us with his presence today. But he's not dressed like a king, is he? Who has a robe for his majesty? Let's put it on him. And where's his crown? You think we can make him one? They grab some of the rough, sharp, Uh, brambles or thorns, whatever was present, whatever they could weave together, pressing it down on his scalp. The robe likely would have been a scarlet military cloak which had faded to roughly the hue of purple and its rough fibers would have been catching and pulling at the raw wounds inflicted by the flogging as that crown of thorns pressed into his scalp, the the scalp of Jesus uh, would have Uh, produce excessive bleeding. But it's not this physical brutality that is the emphasis. It's the contempt and mockery of Jesus as king that permeates their actions and which is on display here. Hail, king of the Jews. It was a parody of what they would say to Emperor Caesar. Hail, Emperor Caesar. They're mocking him. They're making a spectacle of him. And this is what Mark and the other gospel writers emphasize, this mocking and scorn for Jesus, which revolved around his identity as king. And if you were here at the beginning parts as we preach through the gospel of John, Jesus came proclaiming a kingdom with him as its king. And this is the point of mockery. In verse 19, it says, Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Again and again and again. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. So Mark paints this picture of unrelenting 
and repeated abuse of Jesus, fueled by their utter contempt as seen in the soldiers spitting on him. Have you ever heard anyone spit on you? It's, it's pretty much, you know, cross-culturally around the world, spitting on someone is not an act of blessing most of the time. It is about as much of a universal demonstration of disdain across the globe that we can come to. And it's, there's one uh, commentary wrote, it is difficult to imagine a greater demonstration of insensitivity and cruelty than the soldier's treatment of Jesus. And it says in verse 20, and when they had mocked him, meaning when they were done, when they had had their fill, when their fun was over, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So Jesus was then made to carry the heavy cross beam to the place of crucifixion. But along the way, a man named Simon was pressed into carrying it for him. And the reason for this, we can discover. So kids, if you got your, your page there, you can see Jesus and there's a man carrying his cross beam there, all right? So just to let you engage a little bit with what's happening here and you can follow along. So the reason for this is easy for us to deduce or to discover if we read other parts of uh, the Bible and the other gospel writers. See, because standard procedure would have been for the person to carry that crossbeam, just the crossbeam is typically what it was, which weighed around 40 pounds. Not sure what those bags weighed, Jim, but I don't know if it was close to 40 pounds, if we want to be accurate. But they would carry it first to the point of crucifixion and there be flogged. But what happened to Jesus? He was flogged first. And he had been so weakened by the violence he had already experienced in being flogged that he was unable to carry the cross. Before Simon carried it for him, if you read other gospel accounts, Jesus stumbled and fell under the weight of the cross because he was simply just too weak to do it. And so Simon carried it for him. And it says in verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour, or nine o'clock in the morning, when they crucified him. And the written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. So with amazing brevity right here, Mark states the brutal fact of Jesus' crucifixion. And the impact of crucifixion upon the body produced a slow and agonizing death by asphyxiation, organ failure, and blood loss. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms made breathing extremely difficult, says Jeremy Ward, who's a physiologist at King's College London, in an article uh, from The Guardian. He says, in addition, the heart and lungs would stop working as blood drained through the wounds from the flogging and other things. And as the leg strength failed, because remember, they would be nailed to a cross. We won't get into all the details of that, but the arms would be outstretched as Jim was, and there would be a little plinth upon which their feet would be put and either nailed through their ankles or through their feet at a bit of an angle and bent. 
so that as they could not breathe, they could push up on their legs because as you're in this position, it's like a constant inhaling and you stand up on your legs to exhale and be able to take in another breath. But eventually, the leg strength would fail and the full weight of the body would transfer to the wrists and to the arms and to the shoulders, all of which would eventually dislocate under the strain at which point it is nearly impossible or it is impossible for the body to breathe properly as there is nothing to take the weight off the chest. And the victim would weaken, fade in and out of consciousness and inevitably expire. And again, Mark's focus in this dark and disturbing scene is not on the gruesome facts of crucifixion, but on the continued cruel and contemptuous treatment now inflicted on Jesus, not by the soldiers, but by the spectators. Notice all he said was, and they crucified him. They would have known what that meant. We don't. We don't live with those horrors, and so we rehearse that. But it's the contempt with which they poured on him that the emphasis lies. And look at verse 29. Those who passed by hurled their insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. (laughs) He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this uh, Messiah, the King of Israel, Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Typically, we think of Jesus on the cross quite high. But in reality, their feet would have only been a few inches off the ground. This is intimate interaction. This is cruel. This is contemptuous. This is in his face. And this mocking derision of Jesus is a stunning portrayal of something written centuries earlier by another king who cried out to the Lord in the midst of malicious attack and derision. In Psalm 22, which is later quoted by Jesus on the cross, King David cries out to the Lord about his situation. And he says, but I am a worm. That's how he felt. And not a man scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, hurling their insults, shaking their heads. Does that sound familiar? He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. The sarcasm just drips from their lips. And do you see what's happening here? They are taunting Jesus concerning what appears to be his lack of ability or his capacity to deliver himself from the shame and agony of the crucifixion that he's enduring. But here in the depths of what is dark and disturbing, their own words beg for a question. The answer to which changes how we view everything. Did you catch how the chief priests and the scribes in their mocking of Jesus inadvertently acknowledged that he had in fact saved others. Jesus had saved people from incurable sickness, the power of unclean spirits. He had given sight to the blind and even raised a little dead girl. 
Should they not have been asking a different question? Should they not have been asking themselves, if Jesus was able to do these things, to bless and to save others, could he not save himself? Why isn't he saving himself from this if he had the ability to do so, since he has the ability to do so? The dark and disturbing scene of injustice, of violence, malicious treatment to which Jesus was subjected is part of the answer to that question. While Jesus is the one who faced trial and execution, this scene is an ugly indictment of the human heart in refusing its maker and rightful ruler. Now, what we witness here in the crucifixion of Jesus may be an extreme expression of this rebellious condition called sin that John spoke about just a little while ago, but it is a condition with which every human heart is afflicted. And while it's easy for us to stand and to condemn the soldiers and spectators and almost shake our heads and our fingers at them, what is difficult and uncomfortable is to number ourselves among them, as we sang Ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out among the scoffers. For there is no substantive difference to our own sin and rebellion against our king. And while we would prefer <laughs> to pivot away from this and avert our eyes and not face into this dark and disturbing scene, we mustn't. Because it is in the darkness of human sin that the light of Christ and God's love that will become apparent will shine through all the brighter. In the crucifixion of Jesus, we do come face to face with something that is exceedingly dark and disturbing, our sin and what it led Jesus to. But we also encounter the most extraordinary display of God's love and justice. Look at verse 33. It says, at noon, the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until three o'clock. Have you ever experienced darkness in the middle of the day as recorded by Mark here? It can be a bit of a foreboding experience, can it? Even if there is a natural explanation. Maybe you knew there's a solar eclipse coming or there's a storm coming. It would happen often where we lived in America where a violent thunderstorm would come and in the middle of the day it would become as dark as night. And you knew then, look out, because <laughs> a tornado might be coming or something like that. But it was astronomically impossible with the timing of Passover for this to have a solar eclipse behind it. The physical darkness that came over the land as Jesus hung on the cross did not have a natural cause. It was a supernatural event with spiritual significance tied to what was happening in the land of Israel. For this was Passover time. And the events of Passover were coinciding with Jesus as he's suffering on the cross. You may recall... If not, I'll walk us through it. It's okay. The Feast of Passover was a remembrance of Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt by God himself. And many will be at least somewhat familiar with the plagues, right, that the Lord brought upon Egypt through Moses, even if you only saw Charlton Heston in the movie, right, or some other form of the movie with Christian Bale or whatever. Um, and in Exodus chapter 10, you don't have to turn there. We read that the Lord instructed Moses to stretch out his hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. And he says this, a darkness that can be felt. 
Pharaoh had persisted in hardening his own heart, refusing to listen to the Lord's demand to release Israel. And so the darkness which came over Egypt for three days was a portent. It was a, uh, um, a foreboding symbol of God's coming divine judgment as it was, as it turned to darkness at noon as Jesus hung on the cross. And the final plague that fell after three days of darkness was the plague on the firstborn where every firstborn male throughout the homes in Egypt would die unless an unblemished male lamb was slain as a substitute and its blood applied to the door frames. And in these scenes in the Old Testament in Exodus, we see God's righteous judgment, but we also see his gracious provision of rescue and salvation and deliverance through the sacrifice of this lamb. And as the scene, the, the darkness came over the scene of Jesus on the cross for three hours, not three days, lasting from noon until three, it would have coincided in the time in Jerusalem when the Passover lambs would be being killed. This is an extraordinary moment. As the Lamb of God hangs dying as a substitute for the sins of the world, an extraordinary display of God's love and his justice being satisfied. We can see why then, I skipped over this earlier, the detail, when Jesus refused the wine mixed with myrrh, which was um, a mildly narcotic drink. It would have helped deaden the pain. It was offered to him as a token or a gesture of pity. Um, in light of the upcoming suffering he would face. But now, beginning to see what we see, we could understand why he wouldn't come down off the cross when they mocked him and why he could not accept the wine. In the garden, if you can rewind a little bit to that point, you may recall how Jesus had asked the Father for this cup of suffering to pass from him. And then he said, not my will, but yours be done. That the cup that Jesus uh, was referring to is a symbolic reference to God's wrath, his, his justice being poured out upon sin. And in Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament chapter uh, 51, I believe it is, yes, verse 17, it says this, awake, awake, rise up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. You have drained it to the dregs, the goblet that makes, makes men stagger. Knowing what he will be accomplishing in being a substitute at the cross, then Peter asked, uh, was asked by Jesus this question. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? See, Jesus came to give and lay down his own life as a ransom for many. And in so doing, he's going to drink this cup with a clear mind and without diluting the impact or the horror of it all. And in verse 34, it says, After these three hours, hanging in the way he was in the darkness, at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sebaktani." Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus isn't asking a question here because he doesn't know the reason why all this has happened. Far from it. 
For remember, he had predicted all this and knew what, was preci- what precisely was happening and why. What's he doing then? He is quoting directly from Psalm 22, which I referenced earlier, as a means of expressing the sense of absolute agony, abandonment, and feelings of being forsaken. One commentary wrote, rejected and scorned by Israel, sacrificed as a political pawn by Rome, denied and abandoned by his own followers, Jesus is wholly forsaken and exposed to the horror of humanity's sin. Its horror is so total that in his dying breath, he senses separation from God. The weight, the burden of our sin being put upon him, the sins of the entire world and the judgment for it have been transferred to him and he felt it intensely. The worst of it being separation from the Father, a mystery that we cannot even begin to fathom, but one that is absolutely essential to restoring us to the Father. Because the only reason we have the possibility of being accepted is because he chose to obey the Father's will and be forsaken and condemned in our place, in my place, in your place. That is the significance of what is happening here. Out of this ugly scene, this dark and disturbing scene in which we're confronted with our own sin problem emerges this Beautiful and extraordinary display of God's love and justice being satisfied. And the text continues. When some of those standing near him heard him say this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. They didn't quite hear what he said. Maybe it wasn't very strong, but did say it was a loud voice. Someone ran, filled the sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. Now, knowing what we know about crucifixion and its impact on the body, it is absolutely remarkable that Jesus cries out in a loud voice. In both of these instances, he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, in a loud voice. And whatever he says here is in a very loud voice. And Mark doesn't record the exact contents of this loud final cry before Jesus breathed his last. But this is the wonderful thing about being able to go to the other Gospels, to John and to Luke, and we get some detail. Because in John's Gospel, he tells us that Jesus cried out, Tetelestai, a Greek word. It means it is finished, paid in full, mission accomplished. What he had set his face like flint to do in going to the cross was done. All the suffering, all the wrath of God, done. And then, having drained the cup of judgment to its dregs, Jesus cried out to the Father once more. Not that the cup could pass from him. He drank it to the bottom. And he cried out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. And as all this was happening, a powerfully symbolic event involving the immense temple curtain, which blocked access to the area in the temple where God's presence especially dwelled, the Holy of Holies. This curtain was massive, 
You can't get it at Dunelm, Ikea, nothing there, no matter how insulative or blackout, whatever. This is a curtain that was massive and huge. Um, in fact, uh, it was 60 feet high. I don't know what the point of the, the ceiling is here. Several inches thick and reportedly required 300 priests to maneuver. And only the high priest could enter this area to blocked off once a year after having made sacrifice for the people's sin. Year after year, on the Day of Atonement, this would be repeated. Offering would be made for the people's sin. The high priest would go in just once a year. Foreshadowing of the day when God himself would provide a lamb for atonement. A way for his righteous wrath against sin to be satisfied. And that's what's happening. Having made sacrifice for the sins of the world once for all, Jesus' death removed that barrier of sin. And the way to the access to God was opened up. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God did it. God made the way. He made the way for us to go to him. We don't have to go there ourselves. Through this, and God opened access. This is the why of the crucifixion. The love of God providing for us. What it accomplished and what it now offers. And the Bible tells us when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he saw him cry out. He had seen people die countless times in crucifixion. This was different. No one cries out in authority with a loud voice as they ebb away by crucifixion. The temple veil is torn in two. There were other signs that happened. And he came to the conclusion as he stood there, surely this man was the son of God. All throughout Mark, we have been considering and building toward an answer to two vital questions, if you remember. Who is this Jesus and why did he come? Who is this Jesus and why did he come? And it is the testimony of the most unlikely candidate. You would have thought it was the priest who recognized him. You would have thought it was the Jewish people who recognized him. No, it was a Roman centurion. That helps bring the picture into focus. And what is that picture? Who is this Jesus? What did he come to do? Jesus is the Son of God who came to open the way to the Father by sacrificing himself as a substitute for our sin. I'll say it again. He is the Son of God who opened the way to the Father by sacrificing himself as a substitute for our sin. In the account of the crucifixion of Jesus... This is one of the two extremes we have seen. We have seen how the extraordinary display of God's love and justice is juxtaposed as we've come face to face with the exceedingly dark and disturbing scene of human sin and cruelty on the cross. So what do we do? We are at the point of conclusion that Mark has endeavored to bring us to. The veil has been removed literally with the tearing of the curtain. Remember Jesus kind of put a veil over who he was? Well, he's removed it. No longer is it a mystery as to who Jesus is and why he came. That's no longer the question. When we come to see Jesus for who he is and why he came, we are inevitably brought to a crossroads of decision. Never should it be, oh, isn't that nice? Isn't that interesting? If these things are true, they are extraordinarily, eternally significant. 
And my prayer this morning, as I was preparing, has been that each of us would feel the weight and the significance and the urgency of these questions greatly of what are we to do with Jesus. Not in some manipulative or coercive way, but that there would be clarity and conviction. Because you see, this morning, whether you realize it or not, each of us find ourselves at a crossroads as to what to do with Jesus. By design, this is where Mark has chosen to take us. And at the cross of Jesus, we come to face to face with our own sin, but God's love and power as well. And what appears to be his hour of greatest weakness, Jesus' cross reveals his true power and ability to rescue and redeem us. And the urgency is in failing to see and appreciate the cross. Failing to see that God has made no other provision. There is no plan B. In the book of Acts, it says that salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which, given to mankind, by which we must be saved. And if you think about it, how could there be any other way if we fully grasp the events of the cross? What more could God be asked to do in demonstrating both his love while at the same time satisfying his justice? Listen to somebody this week who said, God entered into our sinful, broken world and didn't sit on a deck chair. He went to a cross. He took the burden and penalty and all of that upon himself. He didn't distance himself, but rather stepped into our darkness He stepped into that ugly scene. He stepped into our brokenness and pain and took it all upon himself. So what will response will be that you give and I give to King Jesus? Consider these words from the book of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. The way has been opened. So why not draw near? Why not take that step of faith looking to Jesus on the cross as the centurion did and accept him for who he is? The Son of God who came to give himself as a ransom for you and for me. And if you've already taken that step and are here this morning as a follower of Jesus, convinced of who he is and why he came, may you and I never lose our sense of amazement and wonder that God did this for us. As I walked back and forth from the center to Surbiton this week where I live and was thinking about this passage, asked what kept washing over my mind. Why would God do this for me? For us? May it never be that we tire of hearing the message of the cross or stray from proclaiming its beauty and power. May we revel and rest in, the sh- in its shadow knowing that we are accepted only because Jesus was forsaken. And when we fail again and again and again, may we hear the words of Jesus say, it is finished. That's what he did for us. 
In his cross, we see two extremes. We see the extreme darkness and depth of depravity of our sin. But we also see the extraordinary display of God's grace and his love and his justice. How will you respond? Let's pray. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Heavenly Father, as we come to the crossroads of Calvary, give us eyes to see and hearts to respond to what your Son accomplished for us all there. Thank you that you did not leave us in and to our sin, but sent him into the world to redeem and to rescue. It is an easier, comfortable to face into the darkness and depravity of our hearts. But as we have done so, it makes the light of your love and grace that much more a matter of wonder and worship. Help us not to leave this time in your word unresponsive and unmoved. May we each draw near to you in faith, whether that be for the first time or in a renewed sense of conviction, knowing that it is only possible because of Jesus and the cross. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.